Amen. Marvelous love of our Savior. That's what we gather to remind each other about. That's why we're here. That's why we study the Word of God, to remember that He kissed the guilty world with His love. If you have your copy of God's Word, and I, I hope that you do, go ahead and take it and turn to Revelation chapter 16. Revelation chapter 16. A few years ago, I was at SeaWorld with my kids, and my two oldest saw this ride called Atlantis that they really wanted to go on. And from the entrance to the ride, it looks like the car goes up. It's like this little boat. It goes up. It turns around. It does this little splash mountain type drop. And everybody gets a little bit wet. And it rolls around. And it goes back into this little elevator thing. And the ride is over. So I said, OK, great. Let's do it. So my two oldest went on it with me. And it click, click, clicked up to the top, and we went around, and they were a little bit petrified of going down this very quick uh, river ride. And we went down, and sure enough, my son started crying, and, and my daughter, with uh, a little bit of trepidation in her voice, said, that was fun. Um, and uh, Ethan, my, my oldest son, looked at me and said, I'm so glad that's it. And I said, yeah, I mean, that's it. We're done. And you slowly move around this little boat ride, and it takes you to this elevator thing. I have not been on this ride ever. And so this, this boat moves to this elevator, and you go into this elevator, and the doors close behind us. And I'm thinking it's taking us back to the beginning of where the ride was. And this incredibly ominous music starts playing, and I'm thinking something's wrong. And my son looks at me, feeling the exact same way, and says, it's over, right? And I said, I, th I think so. I don't know. Yes, it's over. This is where you lie to your kids and it's actually glorifying to the Lord. <laughs> I said, yes, it's over. Don't worry. Uh, I was in the back because you could only put two people in one seat. So I was in the back and they were in front of me looking behind like, are you betraying us? What are you doing? <laughs> and so I leaned over and I said, I don't know. And the doors, the doors open. Our boat starts moving like this. And then there's a drop and it the boat ride becomes a roller coaster. I didn't know that that even existed <laughs> as an option. And so we get launched into this roller coaster. And my son is just screaming his head off. And we get to the end. And he looks at me and he said, you said that was it. <laughs> I said, I didn't know. I'm so sorry. My bad. Please forgive me. Uh, he won't go on rides with me ever again. But I thought, just alongside my, my kids, I thought, surely this was it. We're done. It's over. And as I was thinking about chapter 16 of Revelation, I just, I think all of us probably feel that way. I think if we're honest, all of us feel, surely we have to be done with judgment. Surely this has to be it. We finished chapter 15. We saw chapter 13 and 14. We saw the horrific nature of the judgment of God to come. And we have just been in, in the middle of judgment after judgment after judgment. And we get to the end of chapter 15, and we think, surely we must be at the end. But we're not. Chapter 16 is God's revelation about the coming bold judgments at the end of Daniel's 70th week, at the end of that seven-year period in the end times. And... As we come to this chapter and beyond, we are being told by God that there is still more for us to learn. 
And instead of being like my kids, screaming, closing our eyes, and just saying, let's get through it, we need to sit in these moments. There's more for us to learn about God's judgment. There's more for us to learn about our response to God's judgment. There's more for us to learn about how we should think about judgment. There's more for us to be made aware of. And so this morning, we will dive into Revelation 16, verses 1 through 11, looking at the first five bowls. We had the interlude last week that set us up for this successive judgment, this consecutive bowl after bowl after bowl of God's wrath being poured out. Let's read what John records for us in Revelation 16, verses 1 through 11. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and it became a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O Holy One, because you judged these things. For they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. They are worthy. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Men were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God, who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent as to give him glory. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Father, we desperately need your help. We need it every Lord's Day. When we open your word, we are opening a book that, yes, was written by human authors, but human authors who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so it is a human book, and it is a divine book. And so we cannot understand it with only our human eyes, our human minds. We need your illuminating divine assistance to show us everything that we need to see, to help us feel the way that we are supposed to feel, appropriate emotions and affections based off of these verses. We need your help. We're completely dependent upon you. None of us is going to walk away this morning from this text with what you desire for us to walk away with unless you act, unless you work, unless you open our eyes. And Father, we don't deserve that. We have hard hearts. We have scales on our eyes. We, we don't deserve the scales to be removed. We don't deserve our hearts to be softened. We don't deserve it. We've done nothing to earn it. We don't merit it in any way. So even in asking you to open our eyes, we are asking for you to be gracious. 
be gracious to us. Grant us a gift that we do not deserve, nor could we ever earn. Grant us the gift of illumination. Grant us the gift to see with spiritual eyes so that we would not be like the Pharisees who while seeing they didn't see, while hearing they didn't hear. Change us from the inside out. Holy Spirit, we pray as we do every Lord's Day that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your word. Magnify Jesus. Make his gospel great in our minds. For how great and awesome your judgment is, make Jesus and his mercy and grace that much more awesome. Show us Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. This text is very simple to see. It's just the bowls that are being described, their judgments and the response to the judgment. So uh, I really want to take it in turn as we go through. I want to just divide it up into three main uh, scenes that we're going to see. We're going to see, number one, the judgments of God and they're righteous. So they're the righteous judgments of God. Number two, we're going to look at the insanity of sin. And number three, we're going to see our proper response of worship in light of God's righteous judgment. So let's start off with point number one, God's righteous judgments. Beginning in verse one of chapter 16, John writes, I heard a loud voice, literally it's a great voice. So loud is that Greek word megos. It's a great voice. It's a voice that's drowning out every other voice. The word megos is used in chapter 16 an unusually frequent amount of times. You see it with uh, great voice, great heat, great river, great day of God, great earthquake, great city, great Babylon, great hail, great plague. Megos is used a lot. There's greatness happening in this chapter. In fact, the word megos is used 11 times in chapter 16, which is more than any other time uh, or any other chapter, rather, in the New Testament. So 11 times in this one chapter, great is used. There's greatness to be seen here. There's awesome, and I know we throw that word around a lot. I do it. I'm guilty of throwing that word around. It's awesome piece of pizza, right? But this is genuine awesomeness. Uh, the chapter that rank, ranks second in the Bible with regard to the use of the word megos is chapter 18 of Revelation, which uh, the word appears nine different times in that chapter. And it's interesting to note that chapter 18 is an elaboration of the seventh bowl, which is found in chapter 16. So what's happening at the end of that seven-year period of time in the Great Tribulation is mega greatness. It's great. It's awesome, terrifying power. And so John hears this great voice from the temple, and it can be none other than God himself saying to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Those are two separate commands, and they're commands that are in, in different voices, but they're both imperative. Go now, do this now, and do it immediately. And that's why they're just going to be successive. Here's one after the other, after the other, after the other. Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. That word pour out is the same Greek word that's used in Acts chapter 2 for God pouring out the Holy Spirit onto his disciples. So not holding anything back, giving in its entirety, that's what's happening here. The wrath of God being given in its entirety. Verse 2, let's look at the first bowl. The first angel goes and pours out his bowl. Remember, this isn't a bowl like a cereal bowl. This is a big saucer that uh, it's just the, the water sloshing off to the side. You just kind of barely have to tip it and it all goes out. It's instantaneous. It's quick. And this first bowl is 
the malignant sores, loathsome and malignant sores, and they're poured out on the people who had the mark of the beast who worshipped the image of the beast. So this bowl tells us two things. Number one, very explicitly, the word for these kinds of sores are the word for boils. Boils are, are these inflamed, oozing, running sores that will refuse to be healed. There's no way they can be healed. In the Septuagint, which the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and then uh, later on it was translated into Greek, so Greek-speaking people could read the Old Testament. So the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. In the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when the description of the boils that are given to the Egyptians, the plague that God gives, that word for boils is the same word that's used here. It's the exact same thing. In fact, it's used of Job. These are the boils that Job received. But Job responds in a very different way. Job, when he receives these sores, he responds in repentance, whereas the men who are going to receive this, the men and the women who received this sore, respond in blasphemy. So we're told what these sores are, but we're also told when these sores are given. We're given a, a, a bit of a time frame here because it says that it's given only to the people who had the mark of the beast, who worshipped the image of the beast. And we know that that happens in the middle of the, the seven-year period. So three and a half years into that seven-year period of tribulation, we have right in the middle something called the abomination of desolation. It's when the Antichrist turns on his peace treaty that he made with Israel and with other people groups. He turns on that peace treaty. He goes into Jerusalem. He sacrifices something pagan and awful uh, on the altar in the temple. And he starts to fight and war against Israel and against Christians. It's after that that the false prophet says, you must bow down and worship the Antichrist. And the false prophet erects this statue, this monument that speaks somehow. And you must come before that monument, bow down, worship that, that image, receive the mark of the beast as a token of your worship of that image, or else you'll be killed. So that has to happen after the halfway point of that seven years. So we're in the back half of the seven years, and in the back half of the back half of the seven years, we're in what's called the Great Tribulation, where things are getting absolutely terrifying for everyone who's on earth, for believers who are running for their lives, and for non-believers who now are being persecuted by God himself. So this has to be in the end. And by the way, these bowls will take us right to the Battle of Armageddon. So we're at the very, very, very end of this seven-year period of time. By the way, just side note, some of you have asked about a time frame for the book of Revelation, and uh, I want to get to that. I think I'll probably do a little bit of a sermon on that in Revelation chapter 20. But the reason why I haven't done that is because that's not the main emphasis of the book of Revelation, right? The main emphasis of the book of Revelation is not when these things are taking place. It's that these things are taking place and our proper response to it. So I want to emphasize what God emphasizes, and there's a little bit of an emphasis of time frame, but the majority of emphasis in Revelation is not on a timeline. The majority of the emphasis of Revelation is on the fact that these are going to happen. God is going to win. Whose side are you on? And do you understand now how that day impacts today? So we're in the back half of that seven-year period of time, and God pours out this first bowl of his wrath, which are these malignant and loathsome sores. Second bowl. Bowl number two, verse three. And the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man. And every living thing in the sea died. Some people would say that 
The bowls are just further expression of the trumpet judgments. Chapter 8 gives us these trumpet judgments, and the trumpet judgments did affect the seas, but they only affected a third of the seas. If you remember, it was just about 30% of the seas. Here, it affects all of it. So the bowls are not just a further uh, reiteration or retelling of the trumpet judgments. They're a separate judgment. Only a third of the oceans were hit in the trumpet judgments. Now, 100% of all of these seas are being hit. And since 70% of the Earth's surface is water, this is worldwide. This is a global event. God says that it's turned into blood, which again is reminiscent of that first plague in Egypt. But John says that it's blood like that of a dead man. So it's not moving. It's coagulated. It has no oxygen in it whatsoever. So the fish inside of this water will instantly be killed. It's just death. Fish can't survive. Any living thing in the oceans will not be able to survive. The, just the, the sheer stench of that worldwide death, all of the waters being turned, all of the oceans and seas being turned into blood and everything inside of it dying, just coming up to the surface and that stench would just be horrific. Bowl number three. Verse 4, then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. So by the time of this pouring out of this bowl, fresh water will be in critically short supply because all of the oceans will be dried up into these, these bloody seas. And at this point, we've already had the two witnesses. You remember the two witnesses that showed up probably a third of the way into the seven-year period, and then they left about two-thirds of the way into the seven-year period. Remember, they were given power to shut the skies. No water, no rain. Also, the angels had held back the winds for a period of time. And if you stop the winds from blowing, you completely reorient and change the hydrological cycle of how water is given to the earth. So water is in very, very critical supply and short demand, and there's no way people are getting to it. And God says, what's left, I'm going to destroy. This bowl comes along and affects not just the oceans, but the fresh water, the springs, the rivers, the fountains of water. All sources of fresh water are destroyed. Again, the third trumpet judgment in chapter 8 tells us that a third of all the springs and rivers were affected. So it's similar, but this is different. This bowl is very different because it affects 100% of all fountainheads, 100% of all spring waters. Verse 5. At this point, I think we might be tempted to cry foul. We might be tempted to say this is beyond what is just, beyond what is right. This is too much devastation, and that's why there's an angel who will help us. I heard the angel of the waters. Very interesting phrase. Apparently there's an angel who has governance over waters, which sounds interesting, sounds a little strange, but it's actually not. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1, there were four angels who were in charge of the wind. Revelation 9, 11, there was an angel who was in charge of the pit, the abyss. Revelation 14, 18, there's an angel who's in charge of fire and has power over fire. Psalm 104, verse 4, and Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7, which is a quotation of Psalm 104, says that God gives the angels charge over different things. So this is the angel who has been given charge over the waters. And he says, righteous are you. Righteous. You are right in what you are doing. <laughs> You've taken away all of my job, right? The angel who's over the waters, who 
provides or sustains or, or helps to guard, uh, God has said, hey, your job's done. I'm destroying it all. And this angel says, you're right in doing that. You're right in doing that. You who are and who were. Notice it's not and who is to come because he's coming. He, he was, he is, and he's there. This is a clear representation. Again, we're right to the battle of Armageddon. This is going to butt up right against the last bull. It's going to take us to the battle of Armageddon. So we're right there at the end. He's on his way. These bulls are simply a, a herald or a forerunner of the second coming of Christ. So you are eternal. You are righteous. You are the holy one. And you judged these things because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. So you are avenging the saints and the prophets. They, they spilled the blood. The, the non-believers spilled the blood of your people. And now you are giving them blood to drink. That's one of the reasons, by the way. There's a number of reasons why I believe that this is actual literal blood. Some people will try and make it figurative. There's some algae thing happening. Uh, I think it's literal blood. And one of the reasons is because the angel says they made the people's blood spill and you're giving them blood back. They killed the disciples, the apostles, the prophets, the saints, and you are avenging their blood by giving them blood. And they deserve it. That's just one of the most terrifying passages in the Bible. Some of your translations might say they are worthy. I like that translation because it's literally what the text says. In fact, go back to chapter 3. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 4, the church in Sardis, there are a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. That's the identical phrase in Revelation chapter 16, verse 6. You've given them blood to drink because they're worthy. They're worthy of it. Absolutely staggering antithesis to chapter 3, verse 4. Those saints were worthy as they walked with the Lord. These non-believers are worthy of the judgment that they received. They're worthy. This is the principle in Latin. We would call it lex talionis, which is the law of retribution, the law of retaliation, the law of, uh, another way you could say it is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You do something wrong and something bad happens to you. We see that clearly in the Bible, and we see that clearly lived out even today, where if punishment is taken away and it's less severe, crime will go up. We see that today. But there's levels, there's degrees to it. You murder someone, in the Bible it says, your life is forfeit. An eye for an eye, your life is forfeit. But steal someone's sheep. You remember... The prophet Nathan told David this story. There's a man who had one sheep, and uh, this other guy had a bunch, and he goes over and he steals the one sheep. What should happen to the man? What's David's response? You remember? You should kill that guy. Nathan's like, well, it was a sheep. I mean, come on. I mean, the, the story was for a point, and he says, you're that man. But should the guy be killed for stealing a sheep? No. But the law was, was given such that it wasn't just give the sheep back, Right? If, it's, if I steal $100 from Jeremiah and the only punishment that I have to pay when I'm found out is that I give him back the 100 bucks, is there any uh, reason why I wouldn't try it again and try to get away with it? There's no reason why I wouldn't go, well, I'll just try it again, and if I don't get away with it, no skin off my nose, right? I'm fine. So there had to be not only give what you stole back, but then 
a penalty and a payment made. So it would be give Jeremiah the hundred bucks back and pay him an extra hundred bucks. Now I will not want to try to steal, to try and get money. I'm not going to do it that way because I lost money. How much more so if we steal from the glory of God? If we take from infinity, what is our penalty going to be? It can't be just give back infinity. It can't just be give back an infinite amount. That's illogical. That's unreasonable. That doesn't even make sense. You cannot give infinity. And so, therefore, your life is forfeit for an infinite amount of time. That's why these judgments are right. They're true. You can't cry foul here. The people have willfully rejected God, and therefore God in his glory will judge them with vengeance. God will do this in righteousness. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 30, describes this vengeance. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, but not in some vengeful uh, way of saying, I want to get them back for who they are and for what they've done. They've hurt me, and I want to get them back. No, this is a penalty being paid, and they will be forced to pay it. Verse 7 tells us that the altar speaks. I heard the altar saying. Now, maybe it's the altar speaking. I'm guessing it's the voices around the altar. So here's the voices that are around the altar, which we saw in Revelation chapter 6. They're the voices of the martyrs. They're the voices of those whose blood has been spilt. And they're saying, yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. In fact, you've been patient with your judgments. You said back then, wait. And you've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting, and now finally the judgment is coming. Your judgments are true and righteous. Just note, God is never capricious in his judgment like those pagan deities we hear of. Just, you, you made me mad and I'm going to get back at you. That's not how God works. So I, there's a little interlude here after bowl number three, because I think... There are two dangers that we might feel as we read these bold judgments. There's two dangers. Danger number one is crying foul. Danger number one is saying, God, this is somehow uh, just too much. This is beyond what is right. And to that, the angels who are holy are saying, no, no, this is absolutely right. But there's a second danger here. There's a second danger, and it's a danger that I think that we might fall into, maybe even more so than that first of crying foul. And the danger would be of glorying in and not feeling any sorrow for those who are going to experience this judgment. Some of us might look at these judgments and say, this doesn't seem fair. This seems like a little over the top, God. Some of us might look at these judgments and say, go get them, God. And I don't think we can do that. We need to weep over the fact that these people have incurred the wrath of God. That they have willfully rejected God. God will be glorified in their judgment, yes. And we can ask that these judgments happen, yes. But not with some vindictive sense of self-righteousness. Go get them, because I'm innocent. We need to be very careful how we view these judgments. These are the righteous judgments of God. That's point number one. We're going to continue the righteous judgments, but within the righteous judgments, now we're going to see point number two, the insanity of sin. So alongside the righteous judgments, now we have the response of sinful man, and it is absolutely insane. Verse eight, the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun. So this is the fourth bowl. 
We've had sores. We've had the seas being turned into blood, the fresh waters being turned into blood. And now men are going to be scorched with the sun. Verse 8, men were scorched. And by the way, the word men there, it has the definite article before it. The men. So that tells us those who also had received the other judgments, those who were the worshipers of the false prophet of the Antichrist who received the mark of the beast. Those men, those women, those people are receiving this. Meaning, believers who did not take the mark of the beast are not receiving this. This is very similar to the Egyptians and the Israelites with the plagues in Egypt. They're falling on non-believers, but not on believers. How it happens, I don't know. But they're falling on, the the sores specifically fall on non-believers, not believers. Believers are going to have to deal with what's going on with the seas being turned to blood and the, the fresh waters being turned to blood. Somehow God will preserve them, but many are going to be persecuted and martyred for their faith. But then that fourth bowl, the people being scorched with the sun, John tells us that it's specifically only those who had received the mark of the beast. They're scorched with fierce heat. Again, my Bible says fierce heat, but it's literally just megas, heat, mega, great heat. This heat would not only scorch the the humans that are on, on the earth, would also melt the polar ice caps, making those bloody oceans and seas and waters rise, inundate the coastal regions of, of the world, flooding areas miles inland with the death of the waters that were there. This is just chaos. This is just pure judgment and death and decay. And up until this point in Revelation, only the Antichrist has been seen as explicitly the one blasphemed in God's name. But here, in verse 9, you see the worshipers of the Antichrist joining in his blaspheming of the name of God and saying, we'll blaspheme too. We'll blaspheme too. This is just a, a great principle. You become what you worship. You become what you worship. As these people worship a blasphemer, they become blasphemers. Whatever it is that you love the most, whatever it is you worship and are satisfied by, whatever you find your greatest delight in, you will become like that. And here, these men become blasphemers. In chapter 11, verse 13, there was a great earthquake. It was a judgment sent by God, and in that judgment, there were some who were brought to repentance, but not here. When this judgment is poured out, all we have is non-believers blaspheming God. They blaspheme. They blaspheme, verse 9, the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give him glory. They know who's doing this. They know that this is God, the one that has the power over the plagues. They know who's doing this, and they will not repent. By the way, this needs to inform our apologetics and our evangelism. This has to inform our our apologetics and evangelism. The problem is not that man doesn't know that there's a God. Romans chapter 1 says everyone knows that there's a God. Everyone has seen clearly. They might be suppressing that truth, but it's not that they don't know. It's not that these people in verse 9 are saying, man, if only we knew where these plagues were coming from, we would bow the knee, cry for mercy, and be saved. They know that this is God doing it, and they still reject him. They also know that they're sinful. Romans chapter 2 verse 15 says that all of us know we have the law written on our hearts. We have a conscience that tells us we've all felt guilty. We've all felt shame. We know we've done wrong things. 
And we know we're all going to give an account for it. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11 says that God has placed eternity on man's heart so that all of us know something happens after we die. We don't know exactly what it is. According to Ecclesiastes 3.11, it's given in progressive revelation that we know what it is. But we all know. We know there's a God. We know we've offended that God. And we know that we're going to meet him one day and give an account. That's not what needs to be shared with non-believers. Yes, you can reason with them for sure. And I think that you should and you should enter into those dialogues. But you need to know that you have those three advocates in every human heart. They know there's a God. They know that they're guilty. And then they, they know they're going to give an account. They know they're going to stand before him. It's not that they don't know those things. Just like these individuals, they know there's a God. They know that they're guilty of the punishment. They're receiving this punishment. They know that they're guilty of offending God. They know these things. So what is it that they don't know? Well, they don't know that Jesus is more satisfying than their sin. That's what they don't know. I had a student this last week. We were going through the Gospel of Mark and we were talking about saving faith and non-saving faith, the faith of the demons. We went to James, and we talked about how demons have faith. They believe that there's a God. They do well. Uh, they shudder. You do well in believing there's a God. That's what the demons believe. They shudder. And one student raised his hand, and he said, wait, if the demons believe in God, why aren't they saved? I said, that's a great question. That's actually James' point in that passage. There's a kind of faith that leads to hell, and there's a kind of faith that leads to salvation. What's the difference? And we walked through, does Satan believe that God is real? Yes, absolutely. Does Satan believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved? Yeah, he totally believes that. He knows that's true. He believes it. Does Satan believe that Jesus died on the cross for sin and rose from the dead for sin? Absolutely. Satan was the biggest target of that all-out assault on him and on evil at the cross and at the resurrection. Satan believes all those things are true. He agrees with those facts of human history and those historical realities. So why isn't he saved? And what changes in our hearts, what makes someone move from believing that those facts are real and true to genuinely being saved? Satan knows that those facts are true and he hates it. He hates that Jesus is the only way to be saved. He hates that God is in control and he hates that sin condemns to hell. He hates those things. You and I, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, what's the difference? The difference is we love those things. We love that there's no other way to be saved but Jesus Christ because that means I can throw myself fully at his mercy and I know salvation's in store for me. It's not dependent on my efforts and on my good works. I love that. Where I used to hate that and think I have my own autonomy, I'm king over my own life, and I can be good enough. Now I realize, oh, I love the fact that I don't need to work to earn salvation. These people don't need to know the reality of who God is. They don't need to know even their own guilt, their own sinfulness. These people in verse 9 know that this is God doing it on behalf of their own sinfulness, and they still blaspheme. What is the difference? The difference, as we share the gospel, is pleading with people, praying that God would open their eyes to see sin as detestable and Jesus as more satisfying than anything the world has to offer. That's the difference. So they don't repent, and God continues to pour out his wrath. Verse 10, the fifth bull. The target of this bull is the throne of the Antichrist. The fifth bull, verse 10, pour, pours out, the fifth angel pours out his bull on the throne of the beast, 
Uh, the beast is the Antichrist, and his kingdom became darkened, so the throne and the dominion of that throne. So I think the whole world is going to be consumed in darkness. And they nod their tongues because of pain. And again, they blaspheme the name of God and the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Notice the insanity of sin. The sores that they're receiving, the pain that they're going through, the scorching of the sun, the drying up of the waters being turned into blood, all that they're experiencing is because of their actions. And they, in anger, blame God. This is the insanity of sin. And we've seen this insanity before. Do you remember in Judges, at the end of Judges, uh, all of the nations, uh, in the nation of Israel, all the tribes, the 11 tribes go after Benjamin because Benjamin did something wicked, and so they go after Benjamin, and they almost obliterate the entire tribe. They almost destroy Benjamin. And then in chapter 21, they're all sitting around with their weapons in hand, mourning Benjamin's loss. They're, they're mourning the fact that Benjamin almost died. And they're going, how could this have happened? This is so sad. Woe is me, because Benjamin's dead. We've almost lost an entire tribe. And not one of the people sitting around that campfire after slaughtering Benjamin, not one of the people say, uh, we're kind of to blame for this. They're all going, oh, this is so sad. What a bummer. I've talked to people before that are living in the consequence of their sin. And here's the insanity of sin. They're living in the consequences of their sin. They've done wrong things. They're receiving the due consequences of their sin. And they've asked me before, why didn't God stop me? Why didn't God stop me? He knew that I was running into sin. He knew that I could have stopped in my sin. He could have stopped me. Why didn't he? You hear the insanity of our own sin, right? Instead of saying, why didn't I stop? Because I have all the power to be able to do so if I choose to do so. They blame God for their sin. By the way, you and I all do the same thing. Don't point the finger at other people and say, yeah, look at how insane their sin is. No, we are just as insane. We think that the consequences of our sin and the penalty that we incur, God's to blame. They're blaming God for the plagues instead of blaming their own sin. Uh, the believers probably are not touched by this darkness. Again, we're not told explicitly, uh, but since we saw in the first bowl and the fourth bowl that it's poured out only on the non-believers, maybe it's not poured out on the believers here. It's darkness, again, very similar to the plagues of Egypt, but here in this plague, there's some gnawing on their tongues because of pain, probably not from the darkness, but because of the, the cumulative effect of everything that's going on. Painful sores, fouled oceans, lack of drinking water, intense heat, all engulfed in thick blackness. It's just unbearable misery. And we see, by the way, that this misery is prophesied. Joel chapter 2, verse 2, Joel chapter 3, verse 14, Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 15, Mark chapter 13. We see in the Old Testament and then even Jesus in the New saying, this is what's going to happen. And as I said, that these series of judgments take us all the way to the end of human history, the battle of Armageddon, the bringing in of the millennial kingdom, that's where we're headed, and these bulls will take us there. So we've seen the righteous judgments of God. We've seen, number two, the insanity of sin. Finally, number three, we need to end with our own meditation of what should the proper response be to God and his judgments. What is our proper response of worship? And I want to give you seven reasons why God's righteous judgments demand that we worship him. Seven reasons to worship God 
for his righteous judgments. Reason number one is because he's righteous. He's righteous in his judgments. This is verse 5 and verse 7. Notice it's a bookend. In verse 5, the angel over the water says, righteous are you. And then verse 7, the altar says, your judgments are true and righteous. So righteousness is what bookends this little mini interlude. God is right. He's not a human judge who makes errors. He's a, a righteous judge. Remember when we studied through the book of Jonah? When Jonah got to Nineveh, Jonah was so angry at God. You are giving Nineveh mercy, and they deserve wrath. I, I just wonder if maybe as we go through Revelation, we're flipping that. God, you're giving them such intense wrath, and they deserve a break. I wonder if we're doing the inverse Jonah here. That's why we're helped by these angels. We worship God because he's right. There is nothing erroneous about what God is doing. There is no error whatsoever to what God is doing. You see this even in the Old Testament. We see a lot of similarities with the ten plagues in Egypt. Even Pharaoh himself says that God is righteous in what he's doing. King Nebuchadnezzar says the same thing, that God is right in what he's doing. 1 Samuel chapter 12, Samuel tells the people they've sinned against God and God is right in giving you a consequence. God's right in giving you judgment. So we worship God as we see these judgments and we're going to continue to see them. We worship God because they're right. And we need to start there. That's the foundation. God is holy and these are righteous judgments. Number two, we worship God because he's eternal. We worship God because he's eternal. This is in verse 5. Righteous are you who are and who were. So you are eternal. You've always existed. You will always exist. And we worship God for that. We see even in these judgments the eternality of God because these judgments will lead to infinite punishment because God himself is infinite. God is the only being in the world who does not have life on loan. You and I, God just, he doesn't even need to uh, kill us. He can just cease giving us life. He's the sustainer of our lives, and he could just stop giving you life. He's the only being who does not have life on loan given to him. And you can't kill him. This is the beauty of who God is. You can't kill him. This is also the beauty of the incarnation. God can't die, but God had to die in order for us to be forgiven, so Jesus becomes fully human to be able to die. But you can't kill God. Even these men and women who are blaspheming the name of God they can't touch him. This reminds me of, uh, you remember in the Chronicles of Narnia, the magician's nephew where that, uh, that wicked witch takes a lamppost, she breaks a piece off, and she throws it at Aslan, who is a Christ figure. She wants to kill him. And it just, just kind of binks right off his head, right? Just bink, and he kind of looks back like, what are you to do? This huge lamppost just shatters as it hits Aslan. He says, you can't touch him. He's God. You can't kill God. And that's designed by God himself to lead us to worship. Bow down and worship him because he's righteous and he's eternal. Number three, worship God because he is the true judge. Worship God because he's the true judge. This is in verse seven. Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, you are true and righteous. Your judgments are true and righteous. It isn't that God is just more powerful than us as a tyrant king, he's true in all of his ways. This is so important to note that his ways are true. Think about our own 
uh, nation. Think about the way that the laws govern our land. The Supreme Court rules over everything and can rule incorrectly, right? They've ruled wrongly before. But we still follow because the law of the land says that they're above the rules that we have, the rules that govern us. They create those things. They put those into effect. And they have the right to rule even though they rule wrongly. This is why that word true is so important. Because God does not rule wrongly. He not only has the right to rule because he is God, but because he's right and true and just, he rules rightly in every ruling that he makes. Every single time. That's why you cannot plead the fifth when it comes to God. You can't say, well, I don't need to talk about that. I, I, I can hide my sin. No, no, he rules rightly. He knows your heart. He knows your soul. And he knows how you have sinned against him. God is true in all of his judgments. This is what he said to Moses in Numbers chapter 11, verse 23, when he is about to judge Israel. Moses was doubting God's power and God's judgments, wondering if they're right. And God says, quote, Moses, watch my words be true. Just watch my words be true. I have said what I said and watch it be true. God is true in all of his judgments. By the way, I don't think that we will experience these judgments. But I do think that we experience the discipline of God. I just want to practically say, there's one thing that's very interesting to know about what God is going after in these judgments. He's going after everything that the people on earth are trusting in to save themselves. He's going after everything that the people are trusting in to live. God's discipline tends to do this for believers, right? God tends to discipline us exactly where we place our trust. If it's not in him, that's where he tends to go after. So my question to you this morning is, where do you tend to place your confidence without reference to him? Where do you tend to hope, trust, and place confidence without reference to him? Could be your finances, could be your um, stock portfolio, it could, be, uh, it could be your fame, it could be your job, it could be so many different things that you trust in. God in his grace is going to say, I know that doesn't satisfy, so I'm going to discipline and get your eyes off of that and get your eyes onto me. Number four, we worship God because he is to be feared. He is to be feared. As severe as this judgment is, it's only and merely the beginning of the judgments that God is going to be pouring out. Yes, it's the end of the judgments of this period of great tribulation, but after the people who experience these judgments die, then they go to hell forever, which will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. After living through all of the seals, all of the trumpets, all of the bowls, they will then have to stand before God and their souls will be thrown into hell forever where they will experience the wrath of God for all of eternity. Listen to the author of Hebrews who says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We should worship God because he is to be feared, and it's a terrifying thing to fall into his hands. Number five, we worship God because he's patient. We worship God because he's patient. Again, this is a time when God is not withholding his wrath. He's letting it be poured out on the world, but you and I are not living in that time. You and I are living in a time where God is being gracious and pulling back his wrath. He has a, a dam that's holding it back, and one day that dam will crush open and will break and shatter and his wrath will be unleashed 
but it's not now. Uh, like I said last week, these bold judgments should have been poured out in Genesis 3. And God has been waiting for thousands and thousands and thousands of years with patience and grace. And he's not waiting like you and I wait. He's not uh, slow like you and I are slow to things. He's not a human like the way that we think of time. He's being patient because he doesn't desire any to perish. He wants to give mercy and grace to all who would receive him. It's not wrong for us to look at this day and look forward to it, long for it. It's just terribly wrong to long for this day with the heart of cynicism, self-righteousness, and retaliation. Remember Ezekiel 18. God does not want the wicked to perish. He doesn't delight in the wicked perishing. He wants them to repent. And we should too. Number six, we worship God because he loves stubborn, sinful people. We see the insanity of sin in these last two bowls that we looked at this morning, the fourth bowl and the fifth bowl. We see the insanity of people being angry at God. We see how hardened the human heart can be. We observe the absolute insanity of sin. And we have to stop. We have to stop and we have to say, thank you, Jesus, for rescuing me from that insanity. We would be just like these people, and maybe some of you still are. Maybe some of you are still in a place where your sin is more precious to you than the Savior, and in your own insanity, you hate God, you're rebelling against Him, you don't want His rule over your life, you don't want to submit to Him, and any discipline or consequence you go through, you get angry at God. What should the people be saying with bowl number four and number five? They should be saying what the angels say in verse five. Imagine if they had responded that way. Imagine if they had responded with, righteous are you who are and who were. You're the holy one and you've judged us rightly. You've judged us correctly. What should they be doing? They should be pleading, have mercy on us. And you better believe that if they were to say that, God would say, yes, I'll have mercy. But they don't cry that out. God has been wooing the sinner. And finally, at the very end, he brings woes upon them. But right now, he is kind and gracious to stubborn, sinful hearts like ours. And we should plead with him for mercy. The only way to run from God and the wrath you're going to experience is to run to God and plead with him for forgiveness. And that leads us to number seven. Why should we worship God? As we see these judgments, why should we worship God? Because, number seven, his wrath has been completely removed in his son. His wrath has been completely removed. Turn in the Old Testament, turn to Obadiah. Obadiah, we haven't been in this book in a very long time. It's not even long enough to be able to properly say Obadiah chapter whatever and verse whatever. You don't say it that way. You say it like Jude, where you just say Obadiah 17, Obadiah 15, because it's only one chapter. Go to Obadiah 15, verse 15. The day of the Lord draws near. That's the period of the end times, and then specifically the great and awesome day of the Lord is what we're looking at in chapter 16. It's near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. That's exactly what we saw 
the non-believers slaughtered the saints and they are receiving a slaughter of their own. Your dealings will return on your own head. Once again, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they never existed. That is the devastation that lies in store. But, verse 17, on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape. You don't have to go through this judgment. On Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, there will be some who escape. How? Why? How can we escape the wrath of God? Because there is one and only one human being who ever gave himself in our place to drink the cup of God's wrath so that we could drink the cup of redemption and enjoy full pardon and forgiveness of sins. That's Jesus Christ alone. He had to experience the cup. He prayed, Father, let this cup pass me by. If it's possible, is there any other way? But he drank it and he drank it to the dregs. He said, thy will be done so that we could receive complete removal of God's wrath and enjoy full freedom, forgiveness, and pardon. So we worship God because he's righteous and his righteousness is seen clearly in Jesus Christ. We worship God because he's eternal and Jesus is the perfect representation of eternality. We worship God because he's judge and in his judgment he condemned his own son in your place. And we worship God because he's true. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. I plead with you today, come to Christ now. Let him bear your wrath in your place. Let him bear the wrath that you deserve for your sins. Be undone by his wonderful love. Live your life in gratefulness and gratitude to his amazing kindness. Cry mercy today, and you will have it. Wait. Don't cry mercy today and you'll receive judgment on that day. Father, we thank you so much for your word that is staggering in its reality, that these judgments are coming. They are coming upon those who refuse you, who refuse to cry mercy. And yet a way has been made for us to be forgiven. A way has been made for the curse that is ours in store for us to be put on Christ and bear that dreadful curse for my soul in my place. And so we say thank you. We are blown away by your kindness. That in our own insanity, you would bring Christ. You would love us even while we were enemies. And so, Father, all we can say is what wondrous love is this? We can't get over this. We cannot comprehend this. We can't get beyond this. We can never say, well, yes, that's just the gospel. This is everything. We deserve everything that's being poured out in Revelation 16, and you poured it out on Christ so that I don't have to. I just get to experience fullness of pardon, full delight of you, my heavenly Father. Father, let that change the way that we sing. Let that change the way that we speak. Let that change the way we share the gospel with others. Hear gratefulness from our hearts now as we respond. We pray in your name. Amen.